Welcome to Disruption Lab. Welcome to Disruption Lab. Welcome to Disruption Lab. The unconventional take on all things. Innovation, tech and transformation. Join, Join us as we explore the ideas and impact that might just change, change the, the world. world. Today, we are taking a further look into a phenomenon which is going to have a major impact on tech interfaces in the 2020s. Intelligent virtual assistants. Principally, IVAs are customizable software agents that can perform tasks or services based on commands or questions. And why are they important? Well, because they are able to truly deliver a human-level, yet automated service experience. This will make any digital service delivery cheaper, quicker, and more accessible to anyone. These virtual agents will transform the service experience in the digital domain, and they will do it by being better adapted to us. Able to chat in instant messaging platforms, able to listen and answer to our speech, and able to perform relevant tasks for us. A recent report by Grandview Research valued the global intelligent virtual assistant market at 3.7 billion US for 2019. And they forecast this is going to tenfold in the coming years. So whether you are in IT, in finance or retail, you should pay attention. In our previous episode, I discussed IVAs and their impact with Daniel Yelte, who leads Accenture's intelligent enterprise practice in the Nordics. Today, we're going to approach the subject from a somewhat different position. So welcome to join me, Hannes Sapiens, for a deep dive into intelligent virtual assistants. In this podcast, we bring in the real experts. In the guests we invite, we look for three things. First, do you work with this technology and these challenges on a daily basis? Are you part of the grid? Do you have skin in the game? Secondly, are you not just digging in, but also working to understand what is happening on a higher level? Do you think about what you do? Do you question what you do? And third, are you able to share that insight? Can you condense years of work and reading into a simple explanation that finally makes that light bulb turn on for the uninitiated? A person who fulfills these criteria and more is Patrick Couch. Patrick works as business developer for AI and cognitive technologies at IBM in Sweden and has for many years been an active communicator and a popular public speaker on the applications of AI in business. Patrick, it's great to have you here. Well, thank you for that introduction. I will certainly do my best to live up to those great words. Thank you. We appreciate that you take the time. We know you're busy. But Patrick, we're not here to small talk. You've been working with Watson, IBM Watson for many years. What's up with Watson? How is he nowadays? (laughs) Well, so Watson's great. Uh, Watson has become this uh, very successful brand for IBM under which we sort of put everything artificial intelligent that we do, more or less. So you will see Watson pop up all over the place, basically, which has made it so that uh, Watson does a lot of different things, anything from virtual assistants, which I guess is the topic for today, but also other things within other areas within artificial intelligence that may not lend itself well to um, virtual assistants. So uh, yeah, IBM is still uh, 
working hard with Watson. What, what are the most interesting developments lately? So the most recently announced developments, I guess, would be relating to um, Watson taking over some of the capabilities that IBM showcased with the Project Debater, which is a neural network that we have trained on public debate. We've taken the conversational services uh, that you associate with chatbots uh, and we've sort of bumped it up a little bit. So IBM has been working, trying to expand the capabilities around actual natural language interaction. And one of the sort of test cases that we've worked hard with uh, relates to the debate because the debate structure is very suitable for pushing the envelope of conversational services because it's a, it's a fixed format. It has a clear agenda. It's very different from simply understanding a question and giving an answer. It's much more about creating an, a persuasive narrative uh, that serves your purpose. Uh, in the debate, it is, of course, to, to win the debate, but in the sort of applied part of, of business, it may be sort of enforcing uh, company strategies or recommending ways to tackle a problem. So it, it's much more complicated than just finding the right answer and providing sort of the single point of view of the truth. Fascinating. So the, the smart systems now, they won't just give recommendations, they'll also be able to argue about them. They will. They will. They will build their cases and they will try to be persuasive based on the sort of the corpus that they have access to or the, the data sets that they've been trained on. So it's very exciting because I think we're seeing such a very rapid progression in the in the field of natural language processing. And not only IBM, I mean, there are a lot of great big companies and very interesting small startups that do a lot of different things and very interesting things in this space. So it's a healthy sort of competitive promise, open horizon that we're pursuing. Absolutely. I mean, there are very rapid developments in natural language processing and understanding that we're seeing right now. We're really in the times of breakthrough there. Unfortunately, it's, in my experience, still relatively limited to the major languages. English, obviously, being the leading one, possibly even Chinese. But for those of us who speak smaller languages like Finnish or, or Dutch, is that further away or will it be easy to catch up with natural language understanding of smaller languages? You're right. There is some catching up to be done. It is fairly straightforward to do so. But it is a bit costly. So I think when you look at the global market, big companies and small companies for them will tend to sort of aggregate towards where the, the business opportunities predominantly are. And the Nordics in a global context is less impactful in terms of the language side of things. Mm. Uh, so therefore, it's been lagging a bit. But but now uh, the Nordic languages, to some extent, are available in Watson, for instance, and there are other companies doing specific localized Nordic language supports as well. So things are moving on quickly. My question really, Patrick, is that how hard can it be? I mean, one, once we've given a machine system the capability to learn language, I mean, we don't lack material to train it, right? Uh, so can't we just dump a million books on, on top of that system in, in whatever language we wish, and then it will very rapidly pick those things up? To some extent, that is what we're doing. And we have certainly benefited from uh, um, the fact that everything happens digitally now. So the, the vast set of, of interactions around popular social platforms generate a lot, a lot of data that sort of um, you can then use to train language understanding. But it is still sort of complex. So it, it's not, that's why it's not just there. Mm. Mm. do actually have to put in the hours and figure things out. Yeah, it needs us humans still with a lot of still, patience. Still, <laughs> yes. True, true. But uh, in in a bit broader sense, I know you're watching the industry, of course. So um, besides what you guys are cooking uh, inside IBM, what other interesting developments have you seen lately that you are enthusiastic about? What, what really interests me is the interface, the, the meeting point between humans and machines or humans and information systems and how we can sort of ease that interaction. 
And I think we're seeing now a clear tendency to, to sort of move towards a more seamless interaction. And, and the demands or the expectations are, are increasing all the time. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, we were initially sort of okay with a pretty poor uh, chatbot if it actually did improve, say, the time to deal with an error and say you, you were filing a complaint, an insurance complaint. And if you could actually, through a very clunky uh, language interface, still get your sort of reimbursement process quickly, you would still be happy with it. But I think those days are sort of gone. We are expecting much more of our conversational interfaces. So that drives a lot of development, I think, so, and a lot of breakthrough. So, I, you know, just the recent things that Google did, for instance, with Google Duplex, mm-hmm. you know, having... Uh, the AI call up hairdressers and, and pizza restaurants. Yeah, that and was disorder. a couple of years back even. It was, so. Yeah, and, and that was, I mean, they were at the level then where people were uncertain whether they were talking to a bot or not. So you can actually do great work, uh, but the question will always come down to, is the value that you, that you create while doing so worth the effort initially? Uh, so it costs to be sort of on the front lines, but, but some has to sort of push the envelope a bit and then a lot of things can come in in the space that they create. So I think we're seeing things accelerating. Uh, some other interesting example you've spotted lately that's you, you said you thought to yourself, wow. Well, I'm I'm impressed by the uptake of these uh, assistants in, in people's homes, like the Siri's and the Google and the Alexa's. I'm, I'm impressed by how people are comfortable using them. I am myself a fairly slow tech adopter. I mean, I have certain things that I adopt early, but other things I adopt late. And when I see friends and family sort of very comfortably, um, casually interacting with with, the, with their assistants or their Google Homes and, you know, asking them to do things, that still sort of impresses me and surprises me a bit, I must say. You brought up the interface dimension, which I think is, is critical to understand this because we have, I mean, the, the smart assistants, they manifest in all different ways. Yes, there are chatbots, there are voice uh, agents, there are image recognition systems, etc. But ultimately, they sh- must be available in all channels, right? And it's the, it's the brain behind that matters, even if it communicates in writing, movies, virtual scenarios, or, or anything else, right? How do you see these different interfaces evolving and, and merging? Well, yeah, so I, well, first of all, I do see them evolving and merging. I think we will go towards a human-centric way of interacting with, with technology. Because of the limitations of technology, we have sort of become accustomed to suffer the, the, the limitations of technology and be sort of be reduced to, to the technology's victims, basically. So we have to sort of, okay, if somebody has put a file structure in place, or a conversational flow in place, or a certain governance structure and the, the, the metadata models are in place within sort of the IT the landscape, it will then impact how customer experience is, is possible to be conducted. Mm-hmm. And so we've sort of, we've been okay with that. We have understood that, well, you know, okay, so, you know, there has to be some order in, in all of these uh, files. So let's have a folder there. But now when we're creating cognitive search functions, then the need for pre conceived structures is less and the focus shifts towards a natural way of actually interacting around your objective like what is it that you want okay you want to file you want to continue working with the powerpoint or something then that is the intent that's what's important how to get that served not how you've structured and and governed the actual information model that you have so i think that's a big shift that is happening now do you see that these virtual assistants are transforming the service experience for for different industries? You want, uh, for example, uh, in in financial services. Yeah, well, in one way that they that they're certainly transforming that is they're making the the best experience possible to be embraced as the benchmark and as sort of as the lowest level that you can then 
push out to all channels and to all uh, uh, agents that are that are uh, that are sort of involved in, in the customer interaction. Uh, so I think the digitalization of that experience has made it possible to democratize the, the best experience because you can simply make sure that either you have a sophisticated automated uh, conversational interface or you have the support that the, that the agent actually needs sort of running as a, as a sidekick as a technology sidekick to the agent so when the when the actual person serves a customer it can rely on expert knowledge that the sidekick the ai so when i speak to a customer rep it's actually a, a human with support of powerful right. systems there but even if i'm ultimately interacting with a human the systems are, are definitely part of the equation exactly and it used to be so that what you wanted when you went to say specialty uh, electronic store like shell company or or you go to one of these uh, you, you wanted the nerd to be your at the other side of the counter you wanted the most knowledgeable person to be there i mean you didn't care about anything else you just wanted the guy to be able to answer your question like okay what's its adapter currency ampere thing that he would just knew the answer like this but that expertise now can reside within the digital support system and then the agent can actually be instead of being the the super knowledgeable tech nerd it could just be a very nice guy mm. A very the communicator, friendly, a, right. a, com- a communicator, a person who you, you feel that you can trust and that you know that if you buy the wrong thing anyway, you can sort of return it. And, and so you will be loyalty to that person through a rapport between two humans, not between your need and the expertise that the company and the provider and the agent can, can give you. Very interesting. We'll come back to the yep. loyalty and, and intimacy of the service mm-hmm. in just a moment. But what I first want to ask you is what I also see in these virtual assistants is that we delegate authority to them. True, like, true. Can you perform these tasks for me, pay my bills or book my flights or, right. or whatnot? And do you see that happening as well, that we, we are now, these systems are getting capable enough that we can delegate relevant tasks to them? Yes, I do see that. It will still take time. And I think when we talk about virtual assistants, we're sort of talking about two dimensions. We're talking about the interactive part, the actual interface, the and conversation, the and then the task performance. And you can think of it as, you know, conversational services and, and process automation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we're seeing the two being married. So at best, you know, you have a very, you talk to your interface the way you want to talk to it, and then it actually does what you want it to do. Now, what limits that capability is basically the underlying infrastructure that supports the various processes that need to be uh, run in order for your uh, sort of request to be fulfilled. Right. So what has to be in there? What has to, what, what, what is required under the hood? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what is required under the hood is some, some clever thinking around uh, process flows and how, how infrastructure can support that. Because as I said earlier, traditionally we sort of limit ourselves by the technological structures we put in place, like the actual IT architecture that has been decided upon. But now I think we can be more human-centric and say, okay, but what is it that we actually want to be able to execute? And then how do we set up the systems to actually enable that? And today it is, the, the, all these digital technologies have become much more mature and they are much better at interacting with each other. So previously, perhaps we needed to agree on standards across industries to get true partnership and ecosystems in place, which is sort of the requirement for complex task execution. Mm-hmm. Now, it's one thing to, to sort of go to work and say, hey, I forgot my password. Can you please reset it? And the bot will certainly do it because mm-hmm. it's a, it touches quite a limited number of systems. It's all within a contained space. But if you want the system to actually execute something more complex, and perhaps it will have to go out in a broader ecosystem. Exactly. If here's the platform thinking coming in, right? So yes, yes. to work within a, one corporate system, 
is is not that complicated. But of course, we don't want to have a hundred different assistants for every service we engage with. Right, so there, there right. must be sort of the, the whole third party integration into the platform that it can make travel bookings or uh, book a hairdresser or, exactly. or whatnot sort of interactions of, on all different levels. And exactly. Are, are and these capabilities available or, or do you see them coming? They're coming more and more. And I think one industry that is sort of at the forefront is the automotive industry where, where we're seeing that as autonomous driving solutions mature, the understanding that the person who, who used to drive the car will perhaps not be required to drive the car as much or in the same way. And that opens up for the car to be sort of redefined as a marketplace. Mm. Because if you still need the car to get from A to B, and that travel time is two hours, and you don't really have to pay the attention on the car, on the road, what do you do? Well, you can shop, Right. for instance. You have something which is very precious in the digital age, which is access to people's attention. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that is the that is the... In my view, the only sort of limited resource out there in digital space, right. that's, that's people's attention. We can't, we can't really scale that. Right. And in the car, you sort of have locked them in. Like, okay, now the, the family's in the car. What do we do? Well, we get screens in the back seats and, and hook up uh, third-party uh, service providers. And so that drives then the actual underlying technology that needs to, to make this possible. So if you're in the car and you want to sort of pre-order your burgers at the burger place, uh, when you're sort of 20 minutes away from it, in order for your car bot or assistant to be able to do that, it has to have some sort of relationship with the McDonald's or Burger King's uh, exactly. ordering system. Ideally, also have a, a wearable knowing your blood sugar levels. Exactly. And exactly. I mean, you could you'd add on any type of services like, you know, health recommendations from your health bot if you're, if you're in, on a weight program or something like that. But, but all of those fancy applications or executions or processes will be restricted by the ecosystem that is put in place. And that will sort of be restricted by the technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the technology will put limits on, on what's possible, but also the agreements put in place between various stakeholders within the ecosystem. So here's then the, the topic which you brought up earlier, Patrick, that is how will then this novel way of services interaction affect branding and, and brand loyalty. Yeah, uh, it will affect brand loyalty. And I think, I think what people are beginning to realize is that the digital landscape is a very low friction place uh, simply because it's not material. So you can move instantly across the globe because you're doing it digitally or virtually. And that means that as soon as you go online, you're sort of fair game. If there's no friction in the marketplace, then you compete for loyalty or attention by providing relevant or good services, not because of restrictions. So for instance, let's say it used to be so that you went to the mall and just because you were in the mall, that defined... Right, there were three clothes stores in Exactly, the mall, right? so you had to go to one of them. So, but, but in the digital landscape, the entire globe is there, right? So you, on the one hand, you have the market opportunity of almost 10 billion people as we get people, economies up and you get people online. But on the other hand, you also have a complete frictionless competitive milieu, which makes it uh, uh, completely different. So I think loyalty will then... So the, the, Yeah, what, what happens from a brand point of view, right? What does company have to do to be relevant and, and build loyalty in this yeah, so, incredibly tight competition? Yeah, so the, they sort of need to do what they've always been trying to do make sure that they have a hook into the customer and make sure that, you know, they have that relationship and, and the relationship is theirs. But I think what is happening now is the, the business to consumer idea is changing. So all this talk about, you know, 
the consumer's consumer or the B2C to C to C to whatever. Everybody's chasing the end customer. Everybody's chasing, you know, where does the where does the actual revenue, where does it appear? And you want to be close to that. So I think therefore you can't trust really partners, can't really trust uh, proxies generally. You have to understand that that your brand is is the only thing that you have as a resident debtor for, for, for people to act. Mm. Like why would they choose you? Digitally, it can only be because they have some sort of emotional connection to the brand. Can I try, try an idea on you mm-hmm. then? My sort of observation here is that these virtual assistants have the power to, to build for several reasons because they, the conversation is very simple. It's very human-oriented. We, we can use dialogue and chat and voice and whatnot. And at the same time, we may, over time, delegate also authorities to them. So the virtual assistant will be a very important gateway mm. to all the other digital services. Mm-hmm. And I imagine there there will be a, a you know a, a serious platform battle here between the, the the big and small players in order to be that number one assistant for a lot of people. Absolutely, uh, you I, share share that. And I yeah, mean, so, what are your thoughts on this development? Yeah, so I saw uh, some news article where somebody said, "Yeah, Microsoft is creating uh, a virtual assistant for business, and Google is creating a virtual assistant for everything else." And I think uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And I think uh, if you think of um, Amazon looking into the prefab housing market. That's very interesting to me. So why do they invest in startups, startup companies that, that create prefabricated houses? Well, it's again, you know, with, with the car, they want to convert the house to a marketplace. So they want the house to be the Alexa house, right? So the prefab house will come with a pre-integrated set of services towards Alexa. And then Alexa will be the interface. It will come with the house and everything will just be slick and up and running and smooth. You will feel super happy, but you will then... The, your gateway into the, the online world will be filtered through Alexa then. And then your access to the internet will basically be limited to the commercial relations Alexa and Amazon have struck up with all the other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So it will be difficult for you perhaps then to, mm-hmm. to, to truly do something that is competitively against Amazon if you have the primary loyalty with Alexa. So, so a lot of that is going on, I'm thinking. And I mean, it will be like a court uh, around a medieval king, right? With mm. the different advisors uh, sort of elbowing to to be uh, the closest whispering into the king's ear. Right, right. And the, But the great thing with that is we are all kings, right? So, so digitalization democratizes everything and makes everybody, you know, an online consumer, sort of darkly, but but at mm. least an equal peer in, in a peer-to-peer network at best. And so I, I do think that there is a platform. I mean, we've seen this with the cloud as well, right? There was initially a push for from um, various tech vendors to, to, to carve out the niche and say, hey, well, get on our cloud, get on our cloud. And then, of course, with with, uh, with Red Hat and, and um, container-based technologies and Kubernetes, that way of, of locking in people is just outdated mm-hmm. through technology. And, and, of course, IBM understood this early and said, hey, you know, let's acquire Red Hat. Let's turn things around and say, we're the hybrid cloud vendor. We don't really care what the underlying cloud infrastructure is that you prefer. That's not our space. Anything is possible to run through containers. Mm. So the, the, the cloud platform battle is sort of, yes, you can go for it, but it's also a bit passe. Mm. And I think the same, it was sort of... As long as you maintain some kind of relationship with the client. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so I'm, I'm saying that uh, as technology erodes the restrictions and limitations that previously have driven perhaps how you operationalize a strategy, then things will shift towards this consumer being the king, no friction on the internet. You have to create brand loyalty and you have to make sure that you that you 
do create an emotional tie to the customer so that it will be in place as the landscape technologically or platform-wise changes. Mm-hmm. Because the relationships may be the, the ones that remain as yeah, the exactly. landscape is constantly transforming. Exactly. And I think Apple is a great example of this. I mean, Apple people tend to be very pro-Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, w- I know that I was very anti-Apple when I was younger, simply because I had friends who were very good at uh, technology and they could sort of hack anything. So I, we were running everything on open source and, and I was completely sort of tech illiterate, but I had friends around me that could sort things out. But when I, when I grew older, I was thinking, well, you know, it does seem quite nice to just plug in and everything works and you don't ever call tech support and blah, blah, blah. And that was sort of associated with the Apple brand. Mm-hmm. And it has sort of been proven out, I think. I'm, I'm now I'm Apple guy, so <laughs> yeah, they certainly deliver across all the different uh, platforms. Uh, they do wearables to to what they are involved in. They do, and they have created this this great brand that people have an emotional connection with. And I think that has, in combination with the fact that they do great stuff, created a tenacity on on the part of the company. It feels like a very fresh company, although they've been around for quite some time now. Indeed. So we often speak about the classic American tech giants. They pop up in our conversation here. Uh, we're seeing some dramatic developments also in Asia. Yep. I mean, the Chinese companies like Alibaba and Tencent are also launching very high-level virtual assistants. What Are you any observations uh, from that corner of the world? Yes. Well, so the access to data will drive a lot of the concretizations of your innovation. So you, you may have a theoretical great idea or you may have an idea or, or, or an algorithmic twist that, that theoretically has great potential, but it will be difficult to capitalize on it before you can put that 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 approach through the fire of actually churning data. And that's why I think a lot of the companies that innovate are data-rich companies. Mm. So you see a lot of things coming out of Amazon and, and Google, but also then in China, for instance. They also have a lot of data. And so, so, so therefore, they are also super innovative. But then also, they have a different cultural climate, both in terms of consumer behavior, but also in terms of politics and, and how you regulate or not the market. And that has also made it possible for them to accelerate quite rapidly in their innovation and in their sort of application of a lot of these fancy capabilities. So it's not saying that all of Asia is fascist, but... It's very interesting to see China, mm. which is a fascist country in many ways, how they are, fascism is very good at mobilizing resources and putting resources to a very focused uh, end. Mm. Not that it perhaps, and I mean, I'm not saying that the end justifies the means in any way, but it's just interesting to see what you can do when you when you just voluntarily or, or not or team up and just push something through. And they have done that. And so, for instance, with the, with the COVID-19 uh, mm. mitigation, although there's a lot of discussion about what data do they actually provide, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, they, they did approach it in a, in a very dramatic way. Mm. No, I mean, what authoritarian governments mm. can do, right? And it's, it's a little uh, simplification, but we, uh, we have three sort of globally competing data models where we have the, the American way, where, which is data for profit, right? Where the companies can harvest and trade uh, user data quite liberally. Mm. We have the Chinese model, which is data for control, where the government uh, has, uh, you know, uses data in, in relatively aggressive ways to control mm. behavior of its citizens and incentivize them towards doing different things. And then, uh, in my view, we have the European uh, model, 
which is dis- different from those two, right? Mm. Where, where there is a stronger emphasis on privacy and users' rights and human rights even. Mm. And uh, I think what we're going to see in the coming decades is definitely how this game plays out. Yeah. And uh, other countries in the world with authoritarian tendencies like Russia and uh, Turkey and Iran, they are certainly looking at the Chinese model mm. and see how they can apply that in, in their respective territories. Right. And, uh, you know, those of us who enjoy the dimensions of, of a certain degrees of freedom and, and avoiding surveillance, we, we may have to stand up for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the whole discussion, when we talk about virtual agents and their capabilities uh, and, their, and their, their capabilities, in relation to you, mm-hmm. uh, we're also talking about data that relates to you, and it becomes certainly an integrity issue. But it is also so that the access to personal data that that the virtual assistant has will define or determine how good of a personalized service it can offer. So, if you think of uh, the, the facial recognition uh, payment solutions available in, in some parts in Asia, mm-hmm. they require that you are okay with being identified. So, I mean, your face at that place in time, buying that Snickers at that 7-Eleven, at, you know, it was actually, I mean, you can't deny that. And, no. you know, you're just, hey, and Big it, Brother knows that. It now. goes beyond just showing your face, actually, because when a camera films your face, it can also tell other things than your identity. It can tell your health. Absolutely. Uh, and even beyond that, I know the systems, they often require you to smile in order to, to sign the, <laughs> right, the right, payment, which right. is also a, a beautiful sort of mind uh, trick, right? Yes, so make yes. people smile in order to enjoy the company experience and right, sort of what, right. what kind of emotions that triggers in yeah. the person. It's very manipulative. It is manipulative. And I think that is why there needs to be a mature conversation about these technologies for them not to sort of go wrong, basically. Mm. And I think that you're right. I think the US, China, Russia have different models when it comes to data management. And I'm thinking that uh, models that don't scale properly, they will be outdated and sort of evolutionary sort of fall to the side. So I'm hoping that that the European sort of uh, open access data integrative approach will be proven to be the most sustainable. Mm. Uh, Mm. But but you're right. We do have to take to the streets. Uh, in some way. Yeah, and uh, take to the streets in different ways as well, right? Both as sort of citizens and advocates of, of, of the liberal society that, that we are happy to live in, but also, I think, as entrepreneurs and yeah. doers in building these solutions. And it's it's a, it's a well-known conversation in the European tech innovation space that, yes, we are often limited by the, all the data restrictions we have here. Look at what the Chinese guys can do. Oh, they can they have access to all this data. They can build much smarter machine learning systems. We need to apply and we need to, to manage data in, in a far more careful way. Mm. And that sort of limits the speed of, of evolution and innovation for a lot of companies. And how can we work around these data protection uh, you know, hurdles without at the same time compromising people's privacy. There are fortunately some interesting innovations there, such as federated learning, uh, an interesting concept where actually the data never leaves the device mm-hmm. and, and you, you simply have an encrypted question sent from time to time mm-hmm. to pick up on certain patterns, but the, the proper data never leaves the mm-hmm. platform. And once we can design those innovative solutions or, or simply using synthetic generated right, data, exactly. has some very interesting applications. Yes, and I think that is sort of where we're heading. We're moving away from the reliance of real-world data simply because of all the 
the challenges that come with that data. So it is much better to have an AI synthesize, create a thin, synthesized data set if we can create a, a good enough data set and then work with that. So that on the one hand is, is happening for sure. Uh, and the other thing, as you say, it is now also possible to actually do a lot of compute on data that you don't have identified. Mm-hmm. Like you could do it encrypted in such a way that you actually don't see what the data contains, but mm-hmm. you can still do what you need to do. Exactly, in, you can in, see in the patterns. Right? You can see the patterns, right? So you see, you, you hear a lot about uh, anonymized data processing and stuff like that. I think IBM put out this um, cryptography called the lattice cryptography uh, out of research some years ago. I forget, maybe this needs to be fact-checked. But anyway, it was about precisely being able to, to execute complex computations on data sets that were not transparent to you. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the recent discussions around uh, Zoom and its... Uh, data management uh, points to the need to, 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 to figure this out. Now, in the Zoom case, it's a bit of a terminology mm-hmm. expectation problem rather than a technology problem because their their way of dealing with encryption is what it is, and mm-hmm. it's fine uh, for what it is, but it is not what they say that it is. <laughs> so uh, I it think was it was I think professionally brought to everybody's attention. Yeah. So uh, I mean, and, and dealt with to a, to an acceptable extent. Right, and when it is when it is actually truly encrypted to the provider as well, then the provider cannot access it. So for instance, if you think of a Spideroke backup system or mm-hmm. something like that, they will back up your data, but they won't be able to see your data, access your data, do anything with the data. It will be blind, dark to them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there are these email services and everything's moving that way, mm-hmm. I think. We're, we're innovating out of the uh, sort of data restriction paradigm yeah, in, in, in cool ways. And I think that that will be to our advantage. Like I think so too. Uh, we're upping the game, uh, maintaining a respect for people's rights and uh, at the same time innovating in, in great ways. Right. And I think that we should not deregulate too quickly or too drastically. I mean, I'm because I'm really viewing the digital world as the same as the the physical traditional world so the the realness of the challenges are there so if you think of uh, how we put out uh, new medications or new vaccines for instance uh, we have a process in place for that and we have clinical trials and there's a method to the madness and everything sort of very structured and the whole pro- the whole purpose of that process is to limit risk mm. or or risk fallout of risk or consequences so we don't want to sort of put out a, a substance there that has detrimental effects down the road that we didn't foresee. Mm. The same thinking, I think, should be applied to the way we think of data restrictions. We don't want to do away with data restrictions because we're eager to get something in place, like contact tracing or something like that. And then it turns out later that, yes, we did get contact tracing in place, but also we put ourselves in this problem. Exactly. There was the opportunity for abuse that happens with any technology. There are great uses and there are unfortunately also opportunities for abuse. Yeah, so I think that we should work regulations as a blowtorch on innovation. And you say, hey, you know, if you can't innovate over this hurdle, you're not innovative enough. We're not taking away the the hurdle. We're we're putting the hurdle in place for you to overcome it. Right, we're just raising our expectations. That's what we are. Mm -hmm. So so that that approach I prefer, I think is a less risky one. Of course, I mean, there's always the extreme crisis case where everything's just tossed out the window, martial law, guns in the streets, uh, whatever, you know, and then we, but, but again, I think to the best of our ability, we should think about innovation as a upping the antes and mm. trying to really, you know, put pressure on, on, on novel ways of approaching problems. <laughs> 
we are approaching uh, the end of our uh, short time together here, but I want to ask you, Patrick, sort of to round off, what are your trends that you watch going forward here? What do you think are the interesting developments in this space that people should pay attention to? Uh, yeah, what are those? Well, I think um, I've, I've always liked digitalization as the word to, to define our, our, our times. I think that is the best word for the macro trend. That's what's happening. Then there are many flavors to that. And I think one flavor is precisely the maturation of the assistants, the virtual assistants, and their way of, of actually being a close uh, cooperative partner to us. And I think down the line, there will be this um, butler for everyone solution where, you know, it's not just the upper class that has James the butler come in and, hey, James, I would like to this and that. Or you have, you know, the, the American Express black card or something like that, whatever, if that even exists. Mm -hmm. uh, but we will all have these assistants. And I think we want to look at how things progress and what are the what are the what are the the the, the forefront initiatives that are being tried out. Mm -hmm. That's what I watch. I think. I mean, I'm very, I'm very, and I'm very eager to see what, for instance, OpenAI, mm -hmm. what they are doing, and then the stuff coming out of there. And and uh, yes, I mean that that is a very interesting dimension. Uh, I mean, we see that many AI tools today are developed in closed environments by certain large players, but if we need to integrate functions, how do we pull together different AI capabilities? There are some interesting players in that space. Singularity Net, for example. What do you think? Will we see sort of a back-end integration between different machine learning systems over time? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that we will see, we will continue to see this sort of API facilitated interface structure. And I think the possibility to interact will be much more in focus than the work on trying to create global standards for different things. So this whole ESO thing is great, but it ends up being very theoretical often and very difficult to abide by. But I think the more practical, well, I mean, never mind the global standards, just get it to work. That type of hands-on concrete API economy thing is very impactful. And I think we will see more of that. So I think behind those APIs, there will be a lot of different things. There will be proprietary things, there will be open source things, but what they will all share is the possibility to interact with the other way of doing a thing. So I think we can build complex ecosystems and complex landscapes facilitated through a very clever agreement or a, um, a true insight that it's valuable for everybody to be able to cooperate. Like the digital landscape needs to be complete because that creates the biggest market and everybody wants a big market. Mm -hmm. That's just, you know, innate. So I think uh, that's where we're going. We're going, we, see, we will see more and more interaction, but less and less perhaps standardized things. So there will be more chaos, but more... <laughs> the only standard will be the user. I mean, what, yeah. what, the, what the individual wants from, from the system and whatever happens behind the scenes, let, let the right. different assistants sort that out between themselves. Right, and it has happened. I mean, just past these past, what, 30 years or so? Imagine what has happened. I mean, I remember in the late 90s when I started moving from academics in, into IT and, and I was looking into networking and you know, TCP IP protocols and stuff like that. And I recall you know, setting up access and stuff like that, how much work it was. And now you get this this high-powered uh, smartphone in this beautiful little box. You open it up. There's no manual. You're like, fantastic, mm -hmm. no manual. And everything just 
works and the power of it. You have the whole Pixar studio now in your pocket. Can you imagine it, right? And what do we do? We watch cats. <laughs> so <laughs> We're going beyond. We're, we're doing memes now. <laughs> we're doing memes. That's true. That's what we do. Bryn, Patrick, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank uh, you. Thanks for joining us Great here stuff. in Disruption Land. Thank you. See you soon again, I hope. I hope so. Thanks. Thanks for joining us here in Disruption Land. To visit again, just subscribe to Disruption Land Podcast. This podcast is produced by Epicenter, the house of digital innovation. Discover all about our vibrant.